Well, if you have your Bibles with you, please turn in them to Luke chapter 24. So there's a few chapters beyond what we reflected upon earlier this morning. So Luke chapter 24. We'll be reading verses 13 through 35. Luke chapter 24, verses 13 through 35. Please pay careful attention, for this is God's holy and inspired word. Again, uh, in context, Luke 24 is about, uh, the beginning part of it is a statement about Jesus' resurrection, and then the rest of the chapter uh, consists of these post-resurrection appearances of Christ to his disciples. So Luke chapter 24, uh, beginning in verse 13. That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, what is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. Then one of them, named Cleopas, answered him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And he said to them, What things? And they said to him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who is a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he were going farther. But they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is toward evening. The day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened and they recognized him and he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. And they found the eleven and those who were with with them gathered together, saying, The Lord has risen indeed, has appeared to Simon. When they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. Well, thus ends the reading of God's holy word. May he bless this word to us this morning. Well, now please turn your order of worship to the confessional reading section of our catechism. As you know, our Heidelberg Catechism is one of our statements of faith as a Reformed church, meaning it, it's not scripture, it's below scripture in terms of authority, but it's a faithful interpretation and summary of the main truths and doctrines of the Word of God. 
And this is a document that was written in 1563 as a teaching tool. That's what catechism means. It simply means instruction. It's used in the New Testament a, a number of times. And so it's a means by which we are instructed in the way of the Lord. And this catechism has three main sections, guilt, grace, gratitude, which follows the outline of Romans, the epistle to the Romans. And today we're going to be finishing up Lord's Day 6, question and answer 19. Now we included question and answer 3 for purposes that you will uh, see later on. So we'll begin by confessing together question and answer 3, and then we'll confess together question and answer 19. So please, uh, if you'd please, I'll, I'll read the question, if you'd please respond by reciting the answer. So question 3 asks, how do you come to know your misery? The law of God tells me. How do you come to know this? The Holy Gospel tells me. God himself began to reveal the gospel already in paradise. Later, he proclaimed it by the holy patriarchs and prophets and foreshadowed it by the sacrifices and other ceremonies of the law. And finally, he fulfilled it through his own well-beloved. Well, this question answer 19 is all about the gospel. And the gospel is a topic that, if we've spent any amount of time in a Christian church, is something we're quite familiar with. But ironically, it's also a topic that is very often misconstrued and misunderstood. So for instance, Protestant liberalism, which really took off 100 years ago in the early part of the 20th century, they abandoned, abandoned the gospel. They essentially recognized that some of the main tenets of the gospel, the holy conception, birth of Christ, the resurrection of Christ, even the ascension of Christ, these things are becoming increasingly hard for modern people to believe. And so let's move on from the gospel and just focus on the law, focus on morality. Let's join arms with people across the aisle on social causes. This will make Christianity more palatable, easy to embrace, easier to embrace. But we also have seen and, and do see many conservative evangelicals moving on from the gospel. Whether explicitly or implicitly, the, a, a dominant mindset in the Protestant landscape is to think that the gospel is only needed to get in to the Christian life. But once you're in the Christian life, what you really need is law. You need to understand how to be a better husband, better father, better wife, better mother, better leader, how to beat anxiety and depression, and, and you've really graduated from the gospel. And so what we need are sermons that really are like TED Talks, motivating us to, to be better leaders and um, better or more mentally stable in this world. What we need are political and cultural speeches to motivate us to engage in culture and society. And we don't really need the gospel. Gospel is just for you know, the people trying to get in to the door of the church. Well, question answer 19 says that the gospel rather is very relevant, very needed, not just when we enter the Christian life, but every day of the Christian life. It's extremely relevant and it's absolutely central to us as Christians. 
And so what I'd like us to do is reflect upon this, this topic of, of the gospel, and we'll do so in three ways. We'll briefly consider the definition of the gospel that our catechism gives and as we see in scripture. And then we'll consider this distinction between the law and the gospel, which is a very important distinction. And then lastly, we'll consider how the gospel is a, the central message of all of scripture. So first, the definition of the gospel. So if you look at question answer 19, uh, this is for those of you who've been here the last few weeks, the question asks, how do you come to know this? Now, what is the this in that question? Yeah. Yes. Remember, uh, we're in this, the beginning section of the grace section, and so the catechism has been unpacking for us who our mediator is. We reflect upon how it can't be a mere man, it can't be a mere creature, it needs to be some who is a, someone who is a true and righteous man, but yet someone who is very God. Last week, we reflected upon why Christ needed to be truly human and truly God in order to accomplish redemption and salvation. So Christ is our mediator. That's what the this stands for. So the question essentially is, how do you come to know Christ, who is your mediator? And what answer do we receive in the catechism? The gospel tells us. Yes, the Holy Gospel tells me. So we see very simply that the Gospel is a message about Christ's work on our behalf. And the Apostle Paul actually makes this distinction in Philippians chapter 1. So in Philippians chapter 1, Paul's in prison and he is sharing to the Philippians that there are those in Rome who are preaching the Gospel out of false motives. We don't know much more beyond that. They may, they may be unbelievers, we don't know. But they're preaching the Gospel out of false motives. And Paul's response is very interesting. He says, what then? Whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed and in that I rejoice. Meaning the gospel's objective, and Paul can say that as long as the gospel is purely preached and delivered, no matter the piety of the preacher, it still can save souls. Now, our witness, our response to the gospel can either be a platform to sow gospel seed or it can uh, be a detriment to sowing gospel seed. But our response and our witness does not save people. The objective work of Christ is the power of God unto salvation. So in one sense, a, a, a basic idea, but it's, it's, it's important to keep that clarification in mind that the gospel defined by Jesus' work on our behalf as the second Adam. Well, th this then leads us to the, the law-gospel distinction. Now, listen to what Martin Luther said in, in the 16th century. He said this, Distinguishing between the law and the gospel is the highest art in Christendom. One who every person who values the name Christian ought to recognize, know, and possess. Where this is lacking, it is not possible to tell who is a Christian and who is a pagan or a Jew. That much is at stake in this distinction. Luther really couldn't stress the importance of distinction much more than that. It's at the, the, the vitals of our Christian faith. 
When we think of the Protestant Reformation, we uh, oftentimes think of justification by faith, which is important. We think of the authority of Scripture, which is important. But we should also think of this distinction, the distinction between the law and the distinction, uh, distinction between the law and the gospel. In fact, the, the author of our catechism also wrote a commentary on his catechism, which is helpful. And in his commentary on the Heidelberg Catechism, uh, the chief author of this catechism said that the law and the gospel are the sum and substance of the sacred scriptures. So this was a core tenet of the Protestant Reformation. Now, what oftentimes can be confusing when we think about this, this distinction is sometimes scripture speaks a law and gospel in historical terms. The law and the prophets were, you know, until John. So we're not referring to the law and gospel in historical terms. Sometimes scripture refers to the law as the first five books of Moses, the period of time during the Mosaic covenant, the law. While the gospel is the new covenant. That's not what we mean by the law and the gospel here. What we mean is, is the law and the gospel in a theological sense. So sometimes scripture refers to the law and the gospel in a theological way. So the law refers to the commands or the imperatives of scripture. And we find the law both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. So for instance, during our morning, uh, our communion service, we have a element of our liturgy that's called the reading of the law. And we're using the term law in a theological sense. And we read passages from the Old Testament and passages from the New Testament. So anytime you come across a command of scripture, that's a part of God's law. While the gospel includes the promises and declarations of what God will do for his people in Christ. And we find those both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. We find that as soon as, in, uh, as, soon as Genesis 3.15, God's promise that he will send the seed of the woman to crush the head of the serpent. So the law, in a theological sense, is both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. And the gospel, so far as, as it's a declaration of God's um, work for us in Christ, is found both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. So again, if you look at your order of worship, I included question and answer three, because we see this distinction very clearly in these two question and answers. So... Question three asks, from where do you know your misery? And the response, answer is the law of God. When we peer into the moral revelation of God's law, we are utterly convicted and killed and struck down by our sinfulness. The law's purpose is to convict us, condemn us as those who are breakers of that law. But question 19 asks, from where do you know Christ who is your mediator? The Holy Gospel tells me this. So notice the distinction. The law commands. And so far as it commands, it convicts, it kills, it condemns. The Gospel promises God's grace towards us in Christ. And how we can be delivered from our sins. The law we know by, we, we know the law by nature. Paul says that the law is written upon our hearts by virtue of being an image bearer of God. 
And this is why the law is intuitive to us. This is why we have a conscience that testifies against us. This is why we feel guilt and condemnation. Our society is predicated on law. Do this and you shall live. The whole idea of the American dream is law. Work hard and enjoy the fruit of your merits. It comes natural to human beings. The gospel, we do not know by nature. We only learn of the gospel from without, from God's special revelation. It's so counterintuitive to us. It's contrary to our nature. It's contrary to our culture that we only believe, and by believing we receive this, this gracious gift of righteousness and the forgiveness of sins apart from our merits. And furthermore, the law commands, it calls us to be righteous and holy, perfectly righteous and holy. But it cannot give us what it commands. The law cannot make you righteous. The law cannot make you holy. It's powerless to do that. The gospel is what makes you righteous and holy. The gospel is what makes you what the law commands. Now, the clearest example of confusing the law and the gospel is in the Roman Catholic Church, and this is why it was so foundational of Protestant Reformation. But we also see many Protestant churches throughout the centuries falling into this trap of, of mingling the law and the gospel. And what happens when you mingle law and gospel is that the gospel becomes less gracious and the law becomes less demanding. The gospel becomes less gracious and the law becomes less demanding. You compromise both of them. It's kind of like I remember growing up as a young kid. I, uh, I think it was the first time I had an orange cream flavored candy. And I loved it. And so I thought, huh, I bet if you mix orange juice and milk, you could get orange cream. And I quickly realized that doesn't work. Right? You, you mix the two and you, you destroy both. And that's what happens when we confuse the law and the gospel. We muddy the law and we then muddy the gospel as well. Because what happens is that the gospel becomes less gracious. Christ did part of the work, but we still have to participate and do our part. And the law becomes less demanding because we begin to think that we can actually fulfill it and obey it to such a degree that God can accept our merits apart from Christ's sake. Right? The law becomes less demanding. God grades on a curve now. And the gospel becomes less gracious because Christ did part of the work, but he still hands the baton off to you to do your part. Thus, this distinction is, is so important to the Christian life, to our understanding of Scripture. The law can only command, and as it commands, it either convicts you of your misery or guides you in the Christian life. The gospel is what justifies and sanctifies you. Those are the two main words of Scripture, as it were. The commands and the promises. Well, lastly, we also see how the gospel is uh, the central theme of, of Scripture. So question answer 19 wonderfully unpacks how the gospel is a part of every genre of, of, of the Scriptures. And here in Luke 24, as I already mentioned, 
we, it begins with this witness to Jesus' resurrection. And then in this section, in, in verses 13 through 35, it, uh, we, we learn about Jesus' appearance to these two disciples as they're traveling from Emmaus, or Jerusalem to Emmaus. And on this journey, these two, these two disciples, uh, they don't recognize Jesus. Jesus' identity is hidden from them. And they're going on the, on the road to Emmaus, and they're sad, they're somber, they're depressed. And Jesus comes up to them and says, you know, why the long face? And these two disciples, they look back at him and, are you crazy? Have you been sleeping in a closet? Are you the only one in Jerusalem that, that doesn't know what's gone on? Jesus of Nazareth, this controversial Jewish teacher, he just was crucified and we thought that he was the one, the Messiah, the one who would redeem Israel, deliver us from the tyranny of the Romans, uh, bring the kingdom back to the people of God, but he's dead. More than that, it's the third day since he was dead. And yes, we know that some women went to the, the tomb and, and uh, heard that he rose from the dead and had a vision of the angels, but, but no one's actually seen him yet. And Jesus then in response, in verses 25 through 27, says, O foolish ones, slow to heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So here we see uh, this reference to all of the Old Testament, that Moses and all the prophets. Christ opens up the scriptures and shows to, to these two disciples how he is the main character in the scriptures. At that point, the Jewish Old Testament scriptures. It's all about him. They should have expected these things. It was necessary for Christ to suffer these things and enter into his glory. This shows us then that the, the main question we need to ask ourselves when we're reading scripture is how does whatever passage we're considering, how does this, how does this relate to Christ? Because Christ is the main character of Scripture. It's not us. Oftentimes we want to ask, how, does, how is this relevant to me in my life and my experience, first and foremost? But that's not the question we should lead with. The question we should lead with is, how does this passage point to Christ? And then, insofar as I'm in Christ, how does this passage relate to me? That's the hermeneutic that Jesus is, is giving his disciples. He's the main character of, of God's book of the scriptures. And this question, uh, the, answer, uh, the answer to question 19 picks up on this. And so in answer 19 of our catechism, what epochs or eras of redemptive history does the catechism point out? Paradise. Paradise. And what, what is that a reference to? Yes, Genesis 3.15, that promise after God's curse of the man, the woman, the serpent, he says, uh, he, he gives this promise of new grace. The seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent, promising a second Adam to do what the first Adam failed to do. All right, what's uh, another era or epoch? Sorry, what? 
What was that? The patriarchs and the prophets. Who are the patriarchs? Yes. We have a, a big expansion in this revelation of what the seed of, of, of the woman's going to do under Abraham. As God gives these promises to Abraham and promises him both a land and a, a great people. And we, we learn that the, the second Adam is going to be the one who brings about not an earthly land, but a heavenly land. The new Jerusalem. And how this second Adam is going to now... Bless the nations. Abraham's not just going to be the father of the Jews, but the father of, of the nations, the Gentiles as well. What's this next, the next era that the catechism points out for us? Prophets. Prophets and related to that. Yeah, yes. The sacrifices, the other ceremonies of the law, the prophets, these all fall under the umbrella of the Mosaic Covenant. So more revelation is given under Moses. We learn that the second Adam is going to need to shed his blood. That's what all these sacrifices typified. Second Adam is going to come and offer a single sacrifice for the forgiveness of sins. But the law, the ceremonies of the law, also taught the people of God that the second Adam was going to have to be perfectly righteous. Israel failed to keep the law. They were exiled out of the land of Canaan, and thus the second Adam was going to come and be the true and perfect Israel of God. So more revelation was given under the Mosaic Covenant. And then what's the last era that we, that's referenced here? The coming of Christ. Coming of Christ, yes. Christ comes and he fulfills all of the Old Testament he fills, fulfills the, the, the promises given to Abraham. He fulfills the Mosaic, the whole Mosaic covenant and economy. And he brings about the reality of these things. So Reformed theology has referred to this idea, how the gospel is, is, is given throughout the Old Testament as the covenant of grace. So the covenant of grace was given first in Genesis 3.15 where God promised, upon the failure of the first Adam, God promised to send a second Adam to do what the first Adam failed to do. And this is gracious because simply by faith, we inherit the blessings that the second Adam merits. And then with Abraham, with Moses, the prophets, this covenant of grace continues to expand and unfold. And we learn more and more about what this second Adam is going to do to right the wrong of the first Adam and to earn that seventh-day Sabbath rest that the first Adam failed to earn. Now, in Luke 24, verse 32, once the, these, these disciples finally understood what happened on the road to Emmaus, we read this. Uh, they say to, to one another, Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? I don't know if you guys have have experienced this when, when you finally are starting to see that scripture is all about Christ. It's not about you. It's about Christ. And you start to see how this book is not the compilation of all these disparate texts, but one unified story that preaches the same message from Genesis to Revelation. It's exciting. It's exciting to see Christ 
in every book and genre of scripture? Did not our hearts burn within us? And so the question that we need to ask ourselves every time we open up the scriptures, every time we hear a sermon preached is, where is Christ? We read our Bibles as Christians. We shouldn't be able to walk away from, from the scriptures and a Jewish interpretation could, could agree with us. Scripture is about Christ, and uh, this, should, this should excite us. Do not our hearts burn within us. So the gospel, it's central, it's relevant, it's foundational to the church in every age. I mentioned this before, but I know one author one theologian has said that, you know, if the, the church fails to feed the poor, other institutions in society are going to pick up and, 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 and do that. But if the church fails to preach the gospel, no other institution is going to pick up the slack. That's absolutely unique and foundational to who we are as uh, the church of Jesus Christ. So let us pray.